You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Tuesday, and today you'll hear an episode from our Takeover series. Every month, we ask a different practitioner or thought leader to host a series of interviews that cover a specific theme that's relevant to our community. And like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Sangram here. I'm the host of the Flip Maffler podcast. And as always, every Tuesday and sometimes even on Thursday, we actually have somebody come and do a takeover, which honestly gives me more time to do what I need to do in my life. But it also creates great content on the podcast. So this time, a good friend of mine, really, really a good friend of mine, Ted Wynn, he has a passion for the heroes in healthcare business. And we all know how the healthcare business has been impacted over the last years. And he, he started a podcast right in the middle of it. So Ted, tell us what this podcast series is all about that, and who do you interview in that? Sure. Well, thanks, Andrew, first. And second, thanks for having me here. Yeah, you know, our tagline is dedicated to highlighting bold, selfless professionals in the healthcare industry who are focusing on transforming lives in their communities. And we just thought with the COVID, back, COVID um, pandemic that we're all living through and still continuing to go through that these people and their stories just wasn't, wasn't being told or needed to be highlighted more. And so we just took it on as a, a bit of a passion project and said, let's start talking about these people and what they're doing. And uh, as a result, it's taken off. We, have, uh, we are just finished episode 10. And, Congrats. Uh, thanks. And we have uh, last numbers I checked were about 1,700 downloads already. That is awesome. So the podcast is called Heroes of Healthcare. Yep. And uh, yeah, and, and uh, we are going to have links to your podcast here. So if people want to continue listening to it after even after the series is done, they can go check it out. We'll obviously write a blog and all those things. Share some of the people you're interviewing so we get a taste of it. Yeah. So yeah, and they can they can listen on the Heroes of Healthcare podcast.com website. So we have a whole website with the episodes posted there, Spotify, Apple, all the regular places as well. But yeah, we've been really fortunate. Um, we have uh, uh, Dr. Mark Knapp. He was a chief marketing, uh, excuse me, chief medical officer for Mount Sinai in New York City, who gave us a whole impact of how New York City responded to the pandemic and, and the stress on the people. We had the chief medical officer for Navant Massive Healthcare System in the North Carolina and Southeastern market, talking all about vaccine safety of mRNA and the vaccine that's been coming out. And then we like to mix it up a little bit. We had a old time friend of mine, Jack Curry, who is the voice of the New York Yankees, come on and talk all about baseball and how baseball was dealing with the COVID pandemic, but also how baseball was giving us some normalcy in our lives. Yeah. Because one of the things we also want to focus on is not just the physicality of, of, the, of the healthcare system, but also mental health. So we've also had um, the chief wellness officer from another major healthcare system talking about physician burnout, dealing with all the different clinicians and how are they dealing with the medical stress that they're under, under these uncertain times. So it's been very exciting and it's been, uh, we've had such a cross section of people. I think the listeners are going to find something in uh, great out of each one of them. Awesome, man. Ted, so, so everybody listening, you might be listening to the first episode you might be listening to the 10th takeover episode of this series. So just make sure you you look back and see if you have missed anything. But each one of them is uh, something that I feel 
Ted, you being so passionate about it is going to bring life to a lot of people as they hear it. So Ted, again, thanks for doing this. And everybody, enjoy the show. I'm excited to be joined today by Dr. Juan Kukulan. Dr. Kukulan is a board-certified anesthesiologist who resides in the Miami market. Most recently, Dr. Kukulan was featured by Delta Airlines as one of the heroes of the COVID-19 fight against the pandemic. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Kukulan. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Dr. Kukulan, can you please share a little bit about your background with our listeners? Where were you born? Where were you raised? Where did you do your medical education? And what are you doing today? Well, I was born and raised in Cali, Colombia, South America. And after high school, I went to do my med school in Bogota. That's the capital of Colombia. And briefly, five years, I did primary care and ER in another town called Manizales. That's a small town where the coffee is made. And at that point, I decided that I wanted to do something more with my life. And this when I came to the U.S., first to L.A., where I started doing pediatric cardiac fellowship. That lasted about three months when I realized that I needed to really get a job in order to, like, survive. <laughs> I was lucky enough to get a position at the University of Miami, Department of Anesthesia, where I did my training from 1999 to 2003. 2003. Okay, great. And so you've been living in Miami, I guess, since then, since, since 2003. And married? Yes, I'm married. I have three daughters. Three daughters. I have two. So I know a little bit of what that's like. <laughs> so, you know, maybe you can start Dr. Kukulam with January of this year and February. So we're a little bit before everything has broken out. And why don't you tell us kind of what your world was like back then in January and February when you started hearing about this pandemic? And then what did March and April look like for you? Well, like, I guess like everybody else around January, start hearing about this outbreak of COVID-19 coronavirus in Wuhan. But we have had these kind of things happening during the years and kind of like don't reach us personally. So I really thought that that was going to be the case and it's going to be controlled and go away like any other virus that happened in the past. So we were doing our lives as usual, I guess, as many of the people around the world were doing until we started like listening to the reality of like the spread was going and how deadly and fast this virus was killing people and how it was reaching places outside of China, like Europe, and then how it came here initially in New York. I have friends that live in New York and actually work in healthcare. So I called them and, and they were really telling me, this is horrible, you don't have an idea. Then it came here to like, spread around the states and we would reach here like South Florida. And at that point, the governor, as many others, ordered a lockdown and cease of activities of what was considered not essential. I was working in a cosmetic plastics clinic. And of course, that's non-essential. And we were forced to shut down from one day to the next. It was like Wednesday and we've been talking about like, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to manage this? I came home and like at 9 p.m., my boss called me and said, like, we're closed. Wow. Overnight. Overnight. So you're like, OK. And for how long? Nobody knew. Yeah. So the first night, you really don't think much about it. But when you wake up Thursday morning and say, OK, I'm here at home. I'm supposed to go to work and I don't have really nothing to do. So the first like two, three days, you're like, oh, well, I just take a little rest. It's going to go away magically. like. Most people probably thought about it, but the news and the reality of everything that we were seeing 
was like getting worse and worse. And we were not ready as a community to deal with the problem. Right. We didn't know really how these virus behave. And I still think that most people don't really know. No. Are we going to tackle it and how we can prevent things? So there's like a lot of panic and uncertainty going around. A week after, then I decided, okay, I cannot stay here just stumbling my thumbs, looking at things unfold. I need to do something. I started looking locally if there was any need of like people to help in the hospitals. Mm -hmm. But here, I don't think they were like still hit hard enough and they had enough people. So there was not really a need to like get supplemental people from the outside. That's why I run into the Jackson and Cocker offering to like place you in different places. And I said, I'm ready. So that was a pretty interesting process because I remember that was on a Friday and the following week, Thursday night, they called me and told me, you're going to Georgia. <laughs> and I go like, when? Tomorrow. We're starting on Saturday. And I go like, oh, well. <laughs> so I told my wife and she wasn't very happy about it. No. She was going to be left at home alone with, again, all these fears that everybody had. And on top of that, I was going to go to the war zone and be exposed to like this virus like firsthand. I told her, listen, as long as we have protection and we know we do the right thing, I don't think I'm going to be a problem in terms of getting sick. Right. And do you think at that time when you said that, do you think you had a full appreciation for what this was and what it was going to be? In reality, I spent the whole week really reading what's out in terms of like prevention, treatment and how the virus was supposed to work, how it was supposed to infect and all this. So when I got to Georgia, I thought that I was like this silver knight going, I got this, guys. I'm ready. For me, it was a big surprise when I got to the hospital. And that morning when I asked them, okay, so we have this treatment that everybody's talking about. And how many of these patients have made it out alive? And they told me zero. Wow. So for me, that was a big slap in the face. Yeah. Because it's like, okay, Everybody talks about the wonders of this treatment and it's not working. So what do we do now? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So, right. Exactly. You know, and it's funny as we are starting to talk to more and more people about this time, that does seem to be the theme of that early days, the late February, early March into it, which was just a lot of uncertainty and confusion and don't know what do we do next? Where do we get equipment from? Things, people aren't responding to this thing. You know, so many of the physicians we speak to just said, we just didn't know what to do. And we didn't even know what to do as it related to quarantining and protecting each other. So when we were done with our ship, where do we go? How do we make sure we don't touch other people? You know, a lot of that uncertainty, certainly in those early days, for sure. So, and just the Again, for our listeners, you mentioned Jackson & Coker, and Jackson & Coker is a locum tenens company, and they place temporary physicians. You said that process was very quick. So you, you saw a call on the internet from them and responded. And tell me again, how long was it until you were in Georgia? A week. One week. Wow. And again, for some of the listeners who don't maybe realize, typical privileging and credentialing for a physician like yourself to go to another facility, it typically takes 60 to 90 days to just verify all your credentials and get you privileged at the facility. And this was one week later, there you were standing in the facility. So obviously unprecedented times. Well, not only just a privilege, but the licensing is also another thing that people don't understand. You're licensed in one state. That doesn't mean that you just can't cross the line and start practicing in the state neighbor or like in whatever you want to go. That process takes usually about three, 
six months or like longer, depending on what stage you're applying for. So yeah. for me, that was like, like really something really, really impressive. Right. The government got the licensing done, managing by Jackson and Cocker, and how fast the hospital like, was able to like privilege emergently all the physicians that they required to like come and work there. Yeah, many of the states went into state of emergency and therefore they could use the governor's ruling to say these things could be suspended under the normal circumstances due to the emergencies going on. I also know that you were highlighted by Delta Airlines as Delta stepped up during these times and were providing free flights for COVID emergency relief healthcare providers. Was that your initial trip? Was that on Delta or did that come later? That come later. The first trip I took, again, my wife wasn't very happy that I was going to go. So she started thinking how to avoid like crowds. And the first thing that came in her mind was airports mm-hmm. and airplanes. So she actually suggested that I would drive from Miami to Winnet. And I said, OK, I'll do it. I got to do something to like make her like a little bit more peaceful with the whole idea. Sure. It was an 11 hour, almost 12 hour trip. And then for me, it was amazing to see because you had stuff for gas and get some food that you're like using gloves and putting your masks and going around. And a lot of people were like, nothing is going on. Right. I saw people golfing, people fishing, people gathering. And I was like, wow. I don't know if these people don't see the news or don't read or like they live in a different world, but I guess it's just a different way to like live life. So that was my first trip. Took, I think it was a week. And after that, I decided I'm not driving. This is far, far more dangerous than dealing with the COVID. Okay. So that's what I told them. I'm flying. <laughs> no more driving. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, after all those hours that you're working to then have to jump back in the car and to drive home was difficult. Let's go back to when you first got into the the hospital here in Georgia. You were thrown right into the working with the folks. And how did they assign you? What did they do? Tell the listeners a little bit about what it was like when you first walked in. I know you said earlier you got that first message, which was nobody's surviving. But how did they deploy you within the hospital? When I got there, the critical care department was like run with a, a group of people that are really good at doing critical care. But this aspect of critical care was very foreign to them too. And of course, you're coming to a place that no one knows who you are or how qualified you are. Right. And I guess there was a little bit of fear from their side, like giving responsibilities to somebody like me that just arrived saying, I want to help. Mm-hmm. So they were very welcoming, but I think in their inner thoughts were like, oh God, what are we going to do with this guy? So the first day, actually, I was just following them, like seeing what they do, where they go. And that was a Saturday. Probably felt like you were back in your residency. Well, kind of like an observership because you were not really hands on doing anything. Right. But Sunday morning, did the sign out and they said, do you want to take patients? I'm like, sure. So they gave me, I think, two patients of the whole census that they had. Mm-hmm. So I went up, started looking at things, start communicating with people, start asking questions. What do you guys do here? What do you use? How we do this? And I think after day three, just you're on your own, buddy. And it's funny because everybody has their own ideas of how to manage things. And right. since there's no real protocol how these things should be managed, it was trial and error. So we will sit down and compare notes and see, okay, I'm doing this. Is this working? Or 
Why are you doing? Why you do this? So we start developing a little system that at the end, like the last couple of weeks later, the local tenants will take care of the COVID people and the staff will take care of the rest of the things. And I think that helped us understand better what we're doing good and what was doing bad and the outcomes actually starting to improve. So it was, it was collaboration that was really helping narrow down the best course of treatment for these patients as they were coming in. The director of the unit is a very wise guy and you will come with ideas and the guy will like look at me like kind of when you were a little kid and you tell your father that you want to do something and they look at you like, yeah, kid, I don't think that is going to work, <laughs> but you want to try it as long as it's not harmful. Right. Go for it. And we were doing also in the whole Georgia system, at least Atlanta, there's three big players in healthcare. Mm-hmm. There's Emory, there's Northside, and I think there's North Star. Right. And they came together and they will do grand rounds once a week and they will discuss what was working and what was not working. So they certainly actually help us weed out lots of things. Was there anything that surprised you? Like maybe you were saying, I don't think that'll work or somebody reported we're seeing this is working and you were a little surprised, but you did eventually you saw that it was working. I think one of my strengths is I'm very good at observing things. And listening to other people too, and like analyzing results. I'm not very esoteric in data management, but I like to see clinic stuff and how it works and how it doesn't work. And as I tell you, the director let us do whatever we thought was going to be good. So a little later during the course, we saw that the hydroxychloroquine and the acetromycin and all this Voodoo things were really not doing what they were supposed to do. And so the whole system came to the same conclusion. So we took that out of the management and we started dealing with actually the disease in a different way. Another big lesson was to be patient because humans, at least us as doctors, want to see results very fast. Yeah. And we learned that if we move fast, the outcomes will be bad. Hmm. So it took also a lot of a leap of faith in all of us to like say, okay, we're going to do this thing here that seems very minimal and we're going to wait. Yeah. And we came to the conclusion after like once people get really sick, it takes between three to four weeks to get back if they're going to make it out. Wow. And during those four weeks, you need to like learn how to control your anxiety your frustration and how to like help the team that's helping the patients and nurses, respiratory techs and everybody else like being the same page and don't like crumble. So talk a little bit more about that. That's awesome. Um, I love the fact that, and, I, and again, same thing, we've been hearing stories in Mount Sinai up in New York in their rush where physicians who were inactive because of their specialty being shut down for them to move into helping with COVID. Some of them were asked to do nursing duties. Some of them were asked to do whatever needed to be done. And so Talk to me a little bit about that in terms of the compassion each group was showing for each other and how you guys supported each other. I was lucky that I think the group that I work with is amazing in every single way. They're professional, but they're also very good people and looks like they are very good as a unit. Again, I would do morning rounds with the nurses and techs that I was dealing with, with the patient care that I had. And then we'll come back around like noon. We do rounds with the pharmacy. We do rounds with physical therapists, with everybody all together through the whole unit. And it's amazing how things that you forget or like overlooked, other people can pick. And then if you're open to like listen and let them do their job, I think the whole thing improved and the whole unit like flourished and became a much stronger unit. So it was really through the 
power of collaboration from all sides of healthcare was really helpful in getting the people the care they needed and seeing some better results. My point of view is like, it's like the army. You may be the general, but if you don't have good soldiers and good like middle commands, your tactics are not going to work. Mm -hmm. And I really have to give it to the nurses and the techs because you will go in there like a couple of times a day. And yes, you go in, you dress yourself, you touch the patient, blah, 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 blah. But then you're out of there. And the ones who actually have to execute the plan is them. Yeah. So sticking with the theme of our show here, in your view, those were certainly some of the heroes that were running in on the front line. Like you said, sometimes as the general, you can stand back and create the strategy and go see certain things. But then you deploy the soldiers who have to run into the front lines and execute the plan. If you ask me, I really think that the heroes are the ones that are like in the front line. And I'm calling the front line inside of the rooms with the sick people. Yeah. When you're outside protected by a glass with a positive or negative pressure room and you're full PPE, but you don't touch anybody, you're really not going to get exposed to it. Right. And those people are like mothers, wives, sisters. And again, that fear of you like being contaminated with a deadly pathogen and then bring it to your environment at home is something that is very, very hard to like cope with. Yeah. And so, and I love the way you say that because that's, that's really what this podcast is about. It's about highlighting those people who are heroes. You know, heroes are people who are willing to put themselves in harm's way in order to help other people out. And one of the things I heard somebody else say, which I love, is there's the real reason these folks are heroes also is they don't have superpowers. You know, so we think about a lot of times heroes have those superpowers. And in this case, these folks are just human doing superhuman things. That's the way I heard it put. And I, I love that. If you like talk about superpowers, like the stuff that we saw, Marvel and that kind of thing, I agree 100%. But I think these people have the superpower of like forgetting about themselves and caring for somebody that needs that kind of care, even if that means that you may die. So that's been unselfish. And for me, that's even bigger than being able to do all the things that these so-called heroes do. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and it's amazing, right? But it ties into the calling. So it ties into the calling that you have. It ties into the calling that they have. How about if I ask you the question, why did you get into medicine? When I was probably like seven or eight years old, I got a disease called toxoplasmosis. That's a little parasite that everybody can have, actually. But in my case, affected my vision a little bit. And... I had treatment for about a year where I had to have my pupils dilated and I couldn't do sports and take some like medicine that was very nasty. So I didn't eat. So I lost weight and I wasn't naming it, blah, blah, blah. At that point, I started like going every week to a different doctor. I have a high doctor, my pediatrician, get lab work on. And I started getting really interested in how this works and it was curiosity and how the human body defends themselves. Mm-hmm. So probably by 13, 14, I already was decided that I wanted to become a doctor. Wow. So that was a straight shot from there. It was, that's great. Yeah. It's a, that's a gift, right? So many people, I remember getting out of college and still not knowing what I wanted to do. You know, <laughs> if you were 14, you knew what you wanted to do. It's a gift and you pursued it. And that's, that's awesome. So let's go back. So how long did you make the trip back and forth to Georgia? And when did that end for you? It was two and a half months. Okay. And I would have done it longer, but again, the clinics here reopened and actually spent two weeks more there before coming back. And they called me again saying, hey, if you want, we have more work. I asked my boss and the guy opened his eyes really big and kind of like, are you out of your mind? (laughs) (laughs) 
that was the end of the of the going back and forth. That was the end of going back and forth. So I just love the fact that you couldn't sit at home knowing that there was needs and knowing that you had this skill and this knowledge and that you could help. And you were also willing to run into the front lines to attack this thing. So tell me a little bit about when you would come home. And I guess I assume you had to quarantine when you would come home. And how was that, you know, for your family? Because in my view, your wife and your daughters are heroes too, because, you know, they were you know, it's a sacrifice. It's a sad analogy, but a lot of what we're talking about with this pandemic and with the healthcare workers is very relative to military and people going off to battle or working in the military. And, you know, one of the other unsung heroes in those stories are the families at home. You know, you talked about it even a little earlier about that frontline workers are moms and dads and sons and daughters who are risking themselves there too. But your family made some sacrifices as well. Well, in my case, I, I don't have like a traditional family. I've been divorced, so my daughters don't live with me and my right. wife. So in that sense, it was fairly simple. Tell them you're staying out, out of my <laughs> like contact with me for like as long as I want it. Right. Yeah. And my wife just say, I'm you're not quarantining. I'm just coming home. And if something happens, we deal with it. Right. Because at that point, we started seeing that this virus has a very interesting way of behaving. And that way is that you don't know what's going to do. There's yeah. no real pattern that you can follow. Yeah. So tell me a little bit also about the testing when, you know, for yourself, would they test you when you would get there? Would they test you when you leave? Was there a frequency of testing yourself for COVID? Actually, during the whole experience, I never got tested. Really? You just take your temperature and if you're feeling fine and there's no like clinical signs, you're good to go. Mm -hmm. And did you see work people who you're working with contracting it or was the PPE and the measures that the facility was taking were working and keeping people pretty safe? During my stay there, I, I knew of two physicians that had had it and they recovered. But from the other people, nobody got it. I tell you that the protocols that they developed and the PPE that they had, I have to give it to the administration of Northside. They were really prepared to handle the stuff. And they were thinking also, okay, we have this amount of ventilators. And they're asking me, can we use the anesthesia machines as ventilators? And I say, yes, you can. And so in case that we need to have extra stuff, we can do this and we can do that. So they were like really thinking ahead, preparing to something worse that can develop. Right. That's great. I mean, it's great to hear that they're taking those measures. And it was obviously working because if we saw the outbreaks were going, I haven't read much about it. I saw an article this week that supposedly 900 staff at the Mayo Clinic up in Rochester, Minnesota have tested positive for COVID. So it seems like they're having a bit of a super spreader event at that facility. So I think that, well, that's just a wild guess. It's like people start to relax. Yeah. And then... If you relax, you have your chances of getting infected are higher. Yeah, well, that's a perfect segue because I wanted to ask you, what do you think of this new wave we're going through? Are you surprised about it? Not surprised by it? I'm not surprised whatsoever. Yeah. The, one of the things about humans is that we are fairly selfish and careless as long as we don't see things affecting us directly. Right. So I, I hear comments that why do I need to wear a mask? Why do I need to like not go here? Why can I have like this party with 300 people? <laughs> and, and you're like, really? Do I have to explain you these things? Mm -hmm. I really want to slap you. This is because I've seen what these virus do. Yeah. And you don't care because probably you think you're immune or like it's not going to happen to you. Right. That's probably is why it's not surprising that this is going on. Now, with the winter approaching and things getting colder, people are going to go indoors and they lost the fear. 
because everybody's talking now that, oh, you know, this virus is only 3% deadly. So if you get contaminated, chances are you're not going to die. Mm-hmm. And that's probably truth, but they don't see, besides dying, there's other things that can happen to you, like become handicapped or like getting to renal failure, or like having a stroke and other things that can happen besides dead. Sure. Yeah. No, you hear the stories about, you know, the fibrous and the pulmonary and those becoming long-term issues. You hear about people going into cardiac arrest while they're trying to recover from this. So yeah, no, there's no doubt that there is a bit of a cavalier. What's going on now? I have my, my brother lives in Germany and they're like in a lockdown again. I have friends in Spain and they have like moved back because they have setbacks. So I really don't think that has to do much with the administration. I think it has to do go back to like what people believe in what they do. Okay. Probably the weakness of the Trump administration was to be very lax and let people like do because America is the best country in the world. But here we don't want to step on other people's toes. So we kind of are afraid to mandate things because then you're like seen as a dictator and like you're pulling my rights. Right. You're taking away my freedoms. Right. So. I think that's probably the weakness. Other than that, again, I tell you, like, I cannot complain. I got everything that I needed or I wanted. And for example, we start using Ambrel. Ambrel is interleukin-6 inhibitor. And probably as you read or you hear that the damage that the virus causes is not the virus. It's your own body defending yourself against the virus. Right. And that's why your lungs get damaged, your kidneys get damaged, and so on and so forth. So that we use two doses of that thing. Each dose costs $2,600. And who's going to pay for it? Right, right. <laughs> so, and well, what's tell people when you see like, oh, you know, you're getting paid to like label patients as COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Because your hospital gets $13,629 from Medicare every time somebody has that diagnosis. You're like, okay, yes, that is true, actually. But it's not just for COVID. It's for any diagnosis of pneumonia. But if you think about the cost of an ICU bed, a nurse, the medications that we were running 24-7, and that these people spent at least two months in the hospital, do you think $13,000 are going to cover the cost? No. So your argument is like, come on. Right. Going back, I got to a little bit of like, for me, it was like when you are a kid and you go into a candy store. You're amazed. You're amazed of all these things after yeah. like, like, wow. And I never seen a lot of this stuff. One of the biggest problems we had, I think, as a team is like, we run out of medication. So for sedation, I don't know, you know, there's a medication called propofol. Yeah. But that thing was back order. So we went back to use the old fashioned benzodiazepines and narcotics to keep people under. Those two molecules create addiction. Mm-hmm. And well, you probably hear about the narcotic crisis that this country is going on and blah, blah, sure, blah, the oxy, blah. Right, the Oxycontin and all that. Right? Okay, imagine you're on a drip of a narcotic 24-7 for three weeks. Yeah, your body is probably becoming addicted to it. Right? I think it's addicted. I yeah. say, it's like, <laughs> Not so, becoming, it is. So we were like, okay, we, we we're going to try to get this guy off the ventilator. But every time we lower the station, he gets wacko. It's like, no kidding. He's asking for the drug. Wow. I go like, we need to like do something about this stuff. We cannot keep going back and forth because the guy cannot tolerate. So you have to come with a system, how to replace what you were giving through the IV. So the guy wouldn't go into withdrawal. They would tolerate stopping the drips. Wow. You'd have, and, to, so you'd have to ease them off of it. Yeah, but it was not easy. No. So, no. So, and then you got to tell the nurse, you, you are the one who's going to make this happen. Wow. These are your tools. And then you give them different medications that they can use. I don't want this drip to 
continue running. If the guy becomes hypertensive, you use this. If you do that, da, 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 and you gotta believe. It was funny because when I started using this kind of approach, they told me later on that we thought you were nuts. We thought that what you're doing was completely crazy and really not gonna benefit the patients. Right. But we have to give it to you that it works. That must have been gratifying. It's a leap of faith. Yeah. Yeah. You believed in your education and your knowledge that this was the right thing to do, but you didn't know that it was going to be the right thing to do. They believed in what I was telling that that was going to work. Uh huh. So for me, that was more a leap of faith from them. Yeah. And for me, that was amazing, actually. Oh, that's awesome. And as I tell you, I think during crisis, people bring the best from out of them. Yeah. And it's, I tell you, for me, it was like heartbreaking when you have to like call family members that they were not allowed to get into the hospital and tell them, listen, your husband has reached the end. Mm-hmm. So we want you to come in to say bye. And you're like looking at all the stuff that has been going on and thinking, what else can I do? And running it through a group of physicians, nurses, nurse practitioners and go like, that's nothing you can offer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sure that was the hardest part is was feeling helpless with that. Well, and then accepting the fact that you cannot do anything else. Yeah. And then having the family member come in to say bye. And it's, that was not pleasant, I tell you that. No. And, you know, I talked about that tour of duty and I asked, you know, would you go back? And you said, yes, you know, you would. Again, interesting in some of these conversations I'm having as we're getting into this second wave and there's a demand again, right? We're seeing a spike again for critical care, pulmonary care, ED, all that. The response is lower than when it was in March. And a lot of people are saying it's the the medical fatigue. You know, they're saying, I did a tour. I came to the call. I came to the rally call that we need help. And I did my tour. It was hard. It was emotionally exhausting. It was physically exhausting. And I hear the call again, and I don't know that I can do it again. And that's depleting some of the numbers. Well, personally, my case, I tell you, when I was doing there, I was in a hotel room or in the hospital. So it was a pretty like, I would like a dream. Wake hmm. up, get ready, go to the hospital, do my duties, get out. I will like buy usually food in a gas station because the restaurants were not open. Right. Eat and repeat. And it becomes kind of like routinary. But again, you need to have a group of people that support you morally. Yeah. If you don't have that, you're probably going to break down. So tell me, what were some of the things that the hospital was doing for that emotional support? Were they doing things? I think everybody, not like only the administration, but the people from and the working, the workers were doing amazing stuff. And then the community per se. I think the perception of the doctors, nurses, and so on from the community changed. So basically, the support was shown as food and then giving us masks or like little straps so our ears wouldn't get pulled off mm-hmm. and, and letters and cards. And it was very like gratifying to feel that people were grateful. Yeah. You go to a supermarket and they, they tell you, thank you for your services. Yeah. It's like, and you're like, look at them like, wow. And then people asking you, how are you feeling? And being able to like open up and talk to strangers about how you feel. Right. Yeah. No, well, that, that's great. Yeah, no, I think that that's obviously becoming a big part of it. The, you know, again, same thing. We're seeing upticks in psychology, psychiatry, the need, you know, people who had to deal with this emotionally. And a lot of them were the people like you just talked about, you, you folks who were on those front lines doing that and had to do that. One of the stories I heard was 
you know, from Dr. Knapp in the previous episode was, you know, he talked about how a lot of the healthcare workers would come to work and they didn't want to be near their family because they didn't know if they had been exposed. So they'd say, you know, what am I going to do? Go, I live by myself. I'm going to go home, stay in my apartment. And live by. so then they were working crazy hours and then they were becoming more tired and more stressed, but they didn't want to go home and sit there by themselves. So they figured, let me be here and at least be able to help. But they had to finally start saying to people, you have to go home. You have to rest. You have to rejuvenate yourself. You have to revitalize yourself. You know, you're no good to us if you're, you know, not a hundred percent. I think for me, well, the, the way the work is designed, at least for me, I was lucky that I could have time off between my weeks. Mm-hmm. I think that for any worker, they need to have at least one day a week out of the hospital. Yeah. If you just work continuously, even if you can like be in 12 hours out 12 hours after like two weeks, you're like starting to like feel crazy. Yeah. And well, you probably saw that Groundhog Day movie. Yeah. Right. It's kind of like the same feeling because you're dealing with the same patients in the same conditions and they're not really improving. Mm-hmm. So you start feeling, what am I doing? Is right. this really meaningful? Yeah. So the reinforcement of that concept is very important. Yeah. Oh, I, for sure. I can see. I can see how that became important. Hearing those people saying, thank you. Thank you for your service. How are you doing? You know, that becomes, it makes it all worth it. And again, when we were able to start like excavating people and moving them out of the unit. Yeah. You like feel like. Hey, buddy, you're reborn. Yeah. And everybody comes and is like, oh, my God, Mr. Smith has been extubated. And the yeah. guy doesn't know what's going on, what happened. And there's people that were very sick that at some point you thought they're done. Mm-hmm. But then to see them get out of the unit, even in a wheelchair, yeah. to like start in their rehab was very satisfying. Yeah. Oh, and, that, and we've seen on, on the TV and things, the celebrations and love how they celebrate, you know, the wheelchair, they're wheelchairing the person out and there's all the healthcare staff lining the hallways and giving them a big round of applause, you know, the Rocky music or something like that's playing and, it, you know, we're celebrating it because it is such a huge turnaround and such a huge victory. It is an accomplishment, I tell you. And, I, and again, I think another unsound hero of these whole things are the patients that actually have made it out. Yeah. That's true. Because nobody really understands your internal fight. And I haven't talked to anybody that actually lived through the ICU. And then if they remember anything or how they feel about it. You know, again, it's like you said, the mystery of this whole thing is it's so different patient to patient. So as you said earlier, the 20, 20 year old or the 40 year old who's coming in and not making it. And then the 80 year old who's coming in and surviving. And if there's no rhyme or reason, how it attacks the body is, can be very different from patient to patient, you know, I understand. And so it makes it very challenging. So yeah, the survivors become, uh, you know, they fought the good fight as well. Completely agree. Me also, one of the biggest, like, personal emotional moments is when you approach the patient that's in the unit that has gone through the high flow nasal cannula and now you think that they need to be intubated. and you come to discuss with them the intuition and they're like asking, am I going to make it out? Yeah. You see the fear in their eyes. And you, well, I was very pragmatic. I said like, listen, I cannot answer you that, but I suggest grab your phone, call your family, tell them that you love them. And we let's pray and see that you're going to be one of those that makes it out. Wow. And I tell you, this is very hard for you to like tell somebody, this is probably your last conscious moment of your life. And let's face it. Right. Let's be, let's, you know, it's not fun, but it's reality. And let's be clear about it. 
Yep. Yeah. Wow. That's hard. That takes a lot of courage to handle that situation. But in that moment, I'm sure they appreciate your honesty. And for those who made it, I know they'll never forget your compassion. Well, again, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to like tell a story. Yep. Thank you. Well, I hope it's helpful for you too. It is. So yeah. I still like, I'm in contact with some of the people up in Georgia. Good. I met amazing people in every single layer, not just the hospital, but Wherever I was, I felt very welcome. Good. We got good people in this state. I'm biased. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to hear your opinion. We're all hopeful, say, about vaccines. Does that cause everybody to begin to start to relax again, too? Because they believe hope is coming. I heard Dr. Fauci saying hope is coming, but it's not here. So you need to stay vigilant with what we're doing and things like that. What are your thoughts about the vaccines that you're hearing about? Well, the problem with COVID, in my view, is like it's an RNA virus. Mm -hmm. And during our history, like getting vaccines against RNA virus have been very difficult because they are very unstable and they mutate very fast. Right. So they're going to have a vaccine. The problem is going to be how effective that is and how long does the immunity last for and what kind of side effects you're going to get. Right. And are you willing to risk it? So there's a lot of people that I talk to say, oh, vaccine. Yeah, sure. But I'm going to wait. Yeah. And there's the anti-vaxxers that think that you're going to get autism and God knows what other stuff. So they're no one, they're not willing to do it. Sure. So it's, it's going to be a very interesting couple of months ahead once the vaccine is available and see how it's going to be used and how good it's going to be to protect the community against the virus. And what's your thoughts if they come knocking on your door and they say, I'm ready, we're ready to you as a frontline worker or, you know, as in being in the healthcare industry, they're saying you will be one of the first to make it available to you. And what, what's your thought? Have you made a decision yet? I really think I will probably get it. Again, if you are part of the science, quote unquote, team, it will be kind of like uh, ironic if you don't believe. Right. And just preach, but don't do it. That would be something that I would not do. I will probably get it and hope for the best. Right. And for our listeners, you talked about it, that the virus is an RNA. Can you just explain what that is a little different than some of the other things? Well, there's two types of viruses. One's our DNA, this deoxyribonucleic acid, and the other one is RNAs. That is a different kind of like nucleus. So... I have to go back to my books and start like reading. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. It's all fascinating to me, but I do know that these vaccines are using a RNA sort of technology, which is a little bit different than what other vaccines have been before. Yeah, those are actually made of amino acids. Virus is actually a core of amino acids. And depending if they use the DNA chains or the RNA chains, they will behave differently. So that's the problem that they're facing. That's what the vaccine take this longer and like actually more difficult to like develop. Right. It's the same thing. Another RNA, if I'm not like wrong, is the common cold virus. Mm -hmm. And then you can get cold and then you think you're immune and you get another cold and then another cold and so on and so forth. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's the same thing. We, you know, I remember when the virus was first breaking out and certain people were saying, well, it's just another strain of the flu, which we've learned it's not. But we were saying, well, look how many people die every year from the flu. So it's going to be a virus that's going to be out there, but nobody at that first part thought that it was going to be as deadly as it has become. But probably, and my assumption is, as we get to contain it, it may never go away. We may still be dealing with it forever, just like we continue to deal with the flu or pneumonia or other 
types of diseases like that. In that sense, I think I think the same way you do. I think COVID is here and it's going to stay. Just have to learn to adapt and live with it. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about, so you're back to work now, the work you're doing. How has Miami been? Have you been seeing, they, they went through their wave, I believe, towards the end of the summer. I think if I remember right, Miami was getting hit pretty hard. But I guess in your current work, you're not as involved with the COVID part of it right now. Well, as I tell you, I work in a plastics clinic. And there's really healthy people that want to look better. And interestingly enough, since we reopened, the amount of people that want to look better has increased probably 50%. We test everybody before having surgery. And that's all we can do. We also protect ourselves. But it's not as strict. Everybody wears a mask. We wash our hands. But there's no I-95s involved. I do all my intubations just regular. I don't run. I don't have a, a popper or like I don't have any extra stuff to protect myself. We test ourselves like once every two weeks. Okay. And if somebody tests positive, you're out of here until you're back negative. So it can take two weeks to a month to go back to work. Sure. So we have a couple of those cases happen and so far so good. Everybody has recovered and we're back in business. So let me ask you another question. So if the situation at your clinic were to shut down again and you had the free time again, would you go back? Would you volunteer? Not volunteer, but you know what I mean? Would you see what would be available and where you could help again? Or was one tour of duty <laughs> enough? No, actually, in, in, sen- in the sense of like personal challenge, it was very satisfying. So I will do it like eyes closed. Wow. That's also, great. the situation with the non-essential clinic closing and going back to like be useful and challenged in terms of like doing stuff that you have to think and analyze. Yeah. Got me back to willing to go back to the hospital. Wow. So in April, I applied to a new job in California and I think by February, I'm going to move there. Oh, great. That's exciting. And will it be doing, are you going to continue with anesthesiology or are you moving into more of the critical care. No, I'm going to continue doing anesthesia, but it's going to be full blown now with every sort of case. It's not just doing like routine things that, yeah, I'd say it's been good to pay the bills, but it's not like very satisfying, right? Like in terms of your profession. Yeah. Well, and that's what I love about medical profession people. They feel that calling, right? And, and it, it's about serving patients. It's about making people better. It's about providing care. So yeah, I love that. Well, good luck with that. Good luck with that opportunity. We'll continue to stay in touch and, and we want to hear how that goes. I guess the last piece that I like to kind of end all of the episodes with, first off, want to thank you for your time. Again, you continue to be very gracious and giving us your time and telling us your story. And we love continuing to tell it. So thanks again for your time. I like to end the episodes here with Heroes of Healthcare and ask the question, as you were either growing up or now, who is your hero? Well, for me, that's an easy answer to give you. And I think my heroes have been my parents. They have been great. They have been great role models in terms of person, in terms of relationship among them and among other people. They're kind. They're hard workers. They have good morals. And always being there to like help me with my doubts and provide me with good like advice and guidance. That's awesome. But episode one for this podcast is my father who was my hero. And my father worked in a pharmacy from when he was 14 years old until he retired. 
Wow. Well, again, thank you for your time. Thank you for being part of this. And thanks for all you do. Oh, thank you very much for having me. As I tell you again, and I will continue to tell, I don't feel that I did anything that anyone in my position would have not done. Well, that's what makes you a hero. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much. Thanks, Dr. Kugelan. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.